Welcome to Harvest Valley Worship Center's Sermon of the Week. You can discover more about our church, pastors, and special guests at hvwc.com. We hope that you are blessed by today's message. Last week, we discussed chapter 1 in the book of Joel. And the concept behind that entire week, in fact, the title was Feel the Pain. Woohoo! Yeah, feel the pain. Come on. Pastor Chris is giving us one of those woo! Take on the world messages. Now feel the pain. Weep and mourn and be devastated over the losses in our region. Allow the reality of the spiritual climate of North Idaho to impact your heart. Why do we want that? Because we want revival. And I'll tell you, there is, there is not, I, I don't, I, when I study the revivalists, I don't see a whole lot of revival that, that aren't bur, uh, uh, birthed out of a burden. And if we don't catch the burden of God's heart for this region, we will not see revival. We will continue to move about the status quo of normal religious Christianity in North Idaho. And, and we just want to reject that. And we say, Lord, whatever you want to do, that's what we want. Like, we'll lay our lives down for this thing. To see this region transformed and to begin to look like the kingdom of heaven on earth. Amen. So last week, just as far as a quick uh, review, we talked about four different types of devastation that were kind of modeled in the four different types of locusts that are talked about in chapter one. Because the book of Joel talks about this swarm of locusts that devastate the land of Judah. Right? We know that, that um, as far as I can tell, the setting for when Joel prophesies is during this, the season of the kings. Right? And so, so we've got the kings who there's all these internal struggles and battles over the land and who's going to have authority and who's not going to have authority. You've got some righteous ones. You've got mostly unrighteous kings. And in this, there's a lot of, of chaos in, happening and there's uncertainty in the land. There was uncertainty in the land. And because there was uncertainty in the land, Joel, uh, at some point, an actual swarm of locusts came through and devastated Judah. The results of that is that the land was no longer able to produce any of the fruit or any of the grain or any of the wine or any of the oil or, or the, the, the cattle and the farmers and the sheep. And, and they were all suffering because the land was not able to do what the land was meant to do. Right? So Joel comes in and he says, hey, look, this is amazing thing that has happened here. In fact, you need to tell the story of what happened to generations Right? This, he says, hey, you got you to tell this story. But he points out four different types of locusts. And, and in chapter 1, uh, it is in verse 4. It says, what the chewing locust left, the swarming locust is eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust is eaten. And what the crawling locust left, the consuming locust is eaten. So we looked at these locusts as kind of an analogy. If we were to take a chewing locust and a swarming locust and a crawling locust and a consuming locust and we lay that over the top of North Idaho, well, what are the, what are the locusts? Right? What is it that's eating up and devouring the land here? What is it that's eating up our region? And, and the first thing we looked at was this, um, the chewing locust is the flesh, 
the lust of the flesh, the, the appetites that can't be controlled that are actually devastating the land, right? How many of you ever know anybody that suffers with addiction? I think we all can raise our hand. I don't know anybody who's like, I don't know anybody who's not addicted to something, right? It's just, it's just there's this appetite for, that, that just devours. And then the swarming locust, we said, was kind of like groupthink, Swarming. It's the culture, right? So what are some of the unique things about the culture in North Idaho and the ways that North Idaho is known for? Number one, independent spirit. <laughs> We're going to do things our way. Uh-huh. Oh, you want a mask, Mandy? <laughs> this is North Idaho. I was, in, I was in right after the mask mandate came out. I was in Super One Foods parking lot. And uh, this gal from Washington pulls in and she gets out and she's got like eight kids and they're all like grabbing their masks because they're from Washington. She's like, we're in North Idaho. Put your masks away. <laughs> I was like, yeah, some of you are way too excited about that. <clears throat> all right. So then um, that, there's the independent spirit. The other, the other mindset, and I think this one struck a bit of a nerve with some people was the poverty mindset. We're more willing to embrace poverty than wealth here. Um, we actually feel entitled to do without. I'll let you marinate on that. We feel a little bit entitled to do without. One of the biggest struggles that we have is that uh, people come from other areas where they're entitled to wealth. And wealth isn't a big deal for them. It's normal. And so they come here and we're like, well, pff, you're not entitled to have all that. And they're like, yeah, I am. <laughs> right? So then there's this conflict, right, between poverty and wealth. Okay? And we live in one of the highest uh, real estate markets in the state, second highest real estate market in the state. And then we also have one of the, one of the lower income markets in the state. So we got a real unique situation here where we have tremendous levels of wealth from retirement, retirees moving here with tremendous levels of wealth, and yet the local living person actually has a lower living wage than in Boise or in other areas of the, of the, of the state. So we have a unique spot here, okay? So we talked about the, the, the swarming locust. Then we have the crawling locust. This is a very young, youthful locust. It's just trying to figure things out. You know, and I said, youthful people make mistakes, right? They, they make errors. And so the issue isn't about the mistakes. It's the fact that we don't forgive people for their mistakes. We don't let go of the grievances up here, right? In fact, we don't ask for forgiveness, and we don't offer forgiveness in North Idaho. We just figure, well, I'll just sit this over to the side, and eventually it'll just sort itself out. And we walk away, and we got a pile of unforgiveness on our shoulders. And we wonder why it is that we can't have healthy relationships with people because we are offended. So that's the crawling locust. And then the last one was the consuming locust, and that was the oppression of a religious spirit, prideful performance matched with good intentions. People go, well, if your motives are good, no. No, no, no. You need to get this. Your intention doesn't matter. 
it's important, but let me just tell you this. When you are doing everything out of religious duty because you want God's approval, that's a good intention. It's still religious. You're already approved. You don't have to earn a thing with God. You don't have to earn a thing with God. So your intention to be approved is, might be a good intention. Like, oh, how could that be wrong? Right? So we match religious performance with good intentions, and you have a, a culture of religion. Okay, everybody's good. All right. Now, I know that you're arguing with me in your head. I can feel it. Okay, I can feel the arguments. I can feel people going, but the intention, but the intention, if, I'm, if I, my motive is, if my, okay, just sit that down for a second. Okay, sit it down for a second. Okay, I'm a feeler. I feel things. So some people will have thoughts and I'll feel it. I just felt it. Let me just say this. Your motives are important, but they don't, they're not going to make or break you, your righteousness. They're not going to make or break what, what God does in your life. Even when your motives, like people say, well, if I don't, if, like let's just take tithing for example. If I don't give from a cheerful heart, then is it really, if I just do it out of obedience, God's going to honor your obedience even when your motive isn't right. Oh, snap, I, I'm going to pop somebody's bubble. Yeah, yeah, God, God loves when you're not even, when you don't even have the grid and you still do it by faith, even if your heart's a little yucky and you still do it by faith, even if you don't know what's going to happen and you do it by faith, even if your motive might be a little bit selfish. I don't even get mad at people like, well, I gave today $100 because God, God said he was going to give me $100. And they, maybe their motives are all twisted up. You know what? Your act of obedience, God's going to work that out in you. Just obey. Just do the thing that the Lord's asking you to do. Even if your motive's a little wacky, you're going to be okay. God's going to sort that out in your life. Okay? But if we live our lives according to my motivation being good, and all I'm doing is good, 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 good motivation, and all I do is perform religiously because of my motivation, it's, it's not, it's, it produces a culture of death. Because things can't grow. Things can't grow unless you give God the freedom to water what you sow. Unless you give God the freedom to do something that you weren't involved in in your life. Things die on the vine. I don't even know why I'm hammering that so hard right now. I feel like a lot of us have, have attached our lives to religious performance because of our good motivation. And the Lord doesn't want to have it anymore. He just wants you. He just wants you. Not what you do for God. He wants you. You know, I'm going to probably watch this 30 times and trying to figure out what I just said. So, amen. Hallelujah. All right. So, those are the four things that the religious, the oppression of the religious spirit. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously the flesh uh, we've got the culture, we've got the unforgiveness and offense, and then we've got this religious spirit. And those four things, I think, are eating away at the purposes that God set aside for North Idaho. They're just eating away.
They're devouring it. Okay, And so we talked about feeling the pain because all of chapter 1 was about weeping and mourning and lamenting and, and just take it, take it and go be, feel disappointed and feel the disappointment and feel the pain, right? And we talked about that. And you know what was funny? As I was talking through that stuff, um, you know, some people were like they, they could feel in their spirit like the enemy wanted to bring up past offenses and past hurts and guilt and shame. And we just reject that. Right? This is not the season to carry that. No, God's preparing us to take the land. So, of course, he's going to want you to stare at your belly, you know, and, and, and try to decide and figure out, oh, what do I, what do I, what do I, make it all about you. This is not about you. It is because you're the solution, Right, But when we talk about today, we talk about feeling the pain. We talk about repentance. Right, We're talking about some of these topics that can be a little difficult. Just understand that, yes, you need to deal with your stuff with the Lord. But what we're talking about is redeeming the whole region. We're talking about something on a little bit bigger level. So every time the enemy, during this sermon... Okay, and during the last couple of weeks, as God has brought things up to your mind, just take it to the Father and say, God, I'm sensing that you want me to fix this, that this thing might be broken in me. Just take it to him and leave it there. Just set it at his feet and say, God, I don't know what to do with this or I'm struggling with this. I'm just going to give this to you. And when you do that, when you give it to him, it is in that moment, now he's got the freedom to heal. Now he's got the freedom to do it because we're going to break out of old patterns. Amen? Repentance is an interesting thing because it's about turning around. It's about turning back. And we're going to talk about that today. It reminds me of the pastor and the man uh, that, that gave his life to the Lord years ago. And he had avoided church for a long time. And he comes up for an altar call. And we're, he's sitting up at the altar with the pastor. And they're praying. And they're, they're praying through. And, and, and maybe you've heard a prayer like this. Like, oh, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. Right? Have you ever prayed that? I've, I've prayed that. But I love it because the guy says, Lord, clean out the cobwebs. And the pastor says, Lord, kill the spider. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> so sometimes we'll repent because we see the fruit. And we, pray, we, we ask God to change the fruit. But yeah, God wants to kill the spider. Right? He wants to get at the root of a thing. Amen? <laughs> Amen. You know, um, in order to repent for the sin in the land, we've got to be surrendered people to the will of God. In order to see change happen in our region, um, and, and listen, this sermon's not really, I think, this series is hard because I'm, 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 I'm literally preaching at 30,000 feet. I'm preaching from a perspective that sees the region, and so I want you to join me up there. We're very used to all of the sermons being deeply internally personal, and they will strike you that way, but it's bigger. We're coming from a different perspective. So can you join me at a higher perspective this morning? Okay, thank you. Um, today we're going to review uh, chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 17. I'm not going to read the whole chapter this week. I'm going to read a few verses in the first 11 verses, because what's happening to, today is that... Um, we see this, this moment where God's judgment comes on Judah. And in the judgment that comes on Judah, he describes this coming, uh, this coming army that's going to come and wipe out 
uh, wipe out Judah, that that coming army is like the locusts that had just devoured. So he's making the comparison of the locusts are coming in the form of an army where we had just seen that locusts had devastated the land. Does this make sense? So here in verse 1, it says, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Okay, this is a picture of impending judgment that is coming upon the land. Uh, in this section, you'll see imagery of fire, right? The locusts, the fire. You'll see like cosmic events, <laughs> right? You'll see things with the weather, you'll see all types of stuff, the blackened out sky. This is judgment from God to Judah, okay? It's not, it, this, is, this is God's judgment coming on the land, okay? And the invading armies were prophetically declared to be tools of God himself exercising God's judgment on a nation, Okay? In the Old Testament, that's how it worked. God would use um, catastrophes. He would even, you know, at one point, there was rebellion in the camp, and he opened up, <laughs> opened up the land and swallowed up some families whole <laughs> and then shut it back up. Like, oh, God doesn't like independent spirits. Rebellion, Right? Sons of Korah is the, is the reference there um, in, in the book of Exodus. Now, what's interesting here is that we see this reference to the day of the Lord. Let's look. So he describes in verses 2 through uh, 9 all the details of how this army is going to look. And it's kind of crazy, the imagery of the locusts and the army. It's really cool. And then verse 10, it says, The earthquakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and moon grow dark, and the stars diminish their brightness. The Lord gives voice before his army, for his camp is very great. For strong is the one who executes his word, for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible who can endure it. Now, the day of the Lord, every time you see mention of the day of the Lord, it is in reference to the judgment of God. It's either the near, uh, the day of the Lord is near, or it's one, something that's about, it's impending, it's about to happen, or there's this really far off uh, reference to the day of the Lord. Right, and so in the in we have this amazing thing that happens in that God steps into all of the craziness of mankind, sends Jesus. Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life, dies on the cross, is murdered, an innocent man, receives all of the punishment for all of our sins and failures. He receives that. All of the judgment of God is placed on the shoulders of Jesus. Not little. Not partially, all of it. But this is really cool. Because, you know, obviously Jesus did, broke the mold of what sin deserved. Because he didn't sin. So he then rises from the dead. Death could not hold him down. He rises from the grave. And on the third day, we celebrate Easter because he is risen. He is risen indeed. Right? Jesus rises from the dead, defeats death defeats hell, defeats all of that, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Okay, Jesus is seated in heaven right now. Now, 
What's cool about that is that the judgment of God was placed on Jesus. So now in the New Testament, you will hear references to the day of the Lord. Paul talks about it a lot. And I think a lot of biblical scholars believe that the day of the Lord is this coming day where God judges everything in all of its finality, including everything that's happening in the church age under Jesus's blood. He judges everything. And and most scholars actually believe it's kind of a season. Why? Because we see bowls of wrath being poured out in Revelation. We see these other pictures of plagues and other things that that are considered the judgments of God coming. Okay, so that there is a day of the Lord that is coming. I don't believe we're there yet. Okay, all right, for everybody who's clutching their pearls, waiting to go to heaven, calm down. All right, let me just, let me just say, God is, I don't believe we're at the day of the Lord yet. God's still got some things to do. And there's still a remnant that is desperately seeking his presence. Now, considering all that, we are going to look at the next section. Verses 12 through 17. I have five major points that I'm going to try and and roll through here. And and we're going to read the whole thing. This is actually, um, every, every um, uh, as you teach a concept and uh, in, in, in here in, in the prophetical uh, writing, you'll notice that there are pivot points in, in the books. So you'll see like Joel is belaboring, weep, wail, mourn the pain, feel the pain, and look at what's coming, and there's this like dread. And then there's this moment where it's like, Okay, wait, wait, stop. We're going to switch gears. And this, this 12 through 17 is the gear switching in the tone and the call in the book of Joel. Okay? So we're actually reading the pivot point here. Verses 12 through 17. Now, therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Who knows if he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children in nursing beds. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nations should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? All right, so that is the call from God for a people to choose repentance, right? For, for, listen, there's a judgment. Okay, choose repentance. There's devastation in the land. Call to God. There's this call to repentance. Uh, we're going to break this into some chunks. Let's read verse 12, where it starts off, Now the force says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart. Let yourself activate humility and get your heart broken 
over the losses and devastation in the land. The response to seeing brokenness is to cry out to fast, to weep, and to mourn. The first point, get real with God and get real with your heart towards the broken, which is what we talked about last week. Get real with your heart towards the brokenness that you see around you. Don't quit ignoring it. Quit ignoring it. Quit going, la, 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 la. What's on TV tonight? The beginning of verse 13 says, rend your hearts and not your garments. Right? And this is the key turning phrase of the whole chapter, of the whole book. Okay? That one phrase is the turning point of the whole chapter, of the whole book. It's the key to repentance. It's the key to any lasting move of God. Hearts that have been torn by the effects of sin in the land. I love the words that Joel uses here, and, and he was inspired to use to help us recognize true and genuine repentance. He begs us, rend your hearts, not your garments. The Hebrew custom of tearing one's clothing was an expression of extraordinary emotion. Extraordinary emotion. Usually having to do with grief, horror, terror. Indeed, we talked last week about feeling the pain, but it must be genuine. Real repentance is not just feeling sorry that you have cobwebs. It's not just feeling sorry for your sin or the sin in the land. Real repentance means changing your heart. A complete change of heart requires more than a partial surrender. Requires more than a partial surrender. Giving God 99% is not enough. You can't keep even one small part. Coming to the Lord and seeking God in this region is an all or nothing decision. And we wonder if we're going to be comfortable It's an all-or-nothing decision no matter how uncomfortable it gets. Repent means to, re means to go back, to come back again, right? Re, like if you recycle, you're going to remake something. But pent means top. Penthouse, the top. And and to repent means to go back to the top, to go back to God's ways, to go back to the things that are higher than us. It's choosing not to just wallow in your pain. It's choosing to put your eyes on the Lord and say, God, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to your ways for my life. I'm coming back. I'm going to declare your ways over this land. His ways, not ours. Amen? Amen. That leads us into the second point, which is found in also in verse 13. It says, return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and he relents from doing harm. Set your eyes on the one who can turn the situation around. Set your eyes on the one who can turn the situation around, even in your own personal life. Set your eyes on the one who can turn your situation around. He's the only one who can change the heart of this region. 
If this is going to look like the kingdom of heaven, it's not going to happen because we just sow a bunch of money or we do a bunch of things or we get more into ministry or we do all. No, he's got to move hearts. And he's the only one who can do that. Amen? So set your eyes on the one who can turn the situation around. You know, it's interesting. This concept of return was a theme at the end of 2020. I don't know if any of you noticed, we actually did a whole study called The Return, right? And you know when all this started? Right after Rosh Hashanah. So the Jewish New Year starts, and then all of a sudden, return, return, return. We've just got this, like, drumbeat of return to the Lord, return to the Lord, return to the Lord, across the entire nation. They had a huge event called The Return in Washington, D.C., calling the nation back to God. Right? Okay, so we see that, okay, the return is happening. You know what's happening? God is firing up people to come back to the Lord in fresh new ways. And I believe that there will be a concrete fruit to repentance in this season for those people who have maybe kind of tried to ride the fence in the past. They ain't going to ride the fence now. God said, return, and we've done it. We are doing it. We are in the season of return. Remember who God is, right? His nature. Return to the Lord your God. What? He is gracious and merciful. James 2.13 says, Mercy triumphs over judgment. (laughs) Micah 7.18 says, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because what? He delights in mercy. He delights in mercy. This is the God that we serve. So return to the God that delights in mercy. Sometimes we don't choose repentance because we're afraid of the consequences. But he delights in mercy. Oh, so when you come, he actually brings mercy to the table because he already knows what the devil's accused you of. Right? It's the accusation that prevents you from actually coming. The accusation prevents you from coming. Remember, that's the devil's tool. Accusation will prevent you from repenting. It prevents you from coming in your brokenness to God. But God is ready and waiting and his blood paid for mercy to be poured out into your life instead of judgment. Hallelujah. He paid the price. All right. Number three, prepare to give back as God turns the situation around. Prepare to give back as God turns the situation around. This is kind of fun because verse 14 can be a little confusing for people. It says, uh, uh, who knows if he will turn and relent? Who knows? Who knows? Like, okay, repent. Call a fast, call a sacred, okay, do all this stuff. And who knows, maybe, maybe he'll relent. Who knows? Well, we know he relents. We know he relents. But what's really cool about this little, it's a, like a Hebrew idiom. And, and what's really cool about this, it says, who knows if he will, he will turn and relent. It's like the sarcastic, like, of course he'll return and relent. Right? Do you, do you, know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's like a statement of fact. Like, who knows if I love my wife? No, that's a statement. I know I don't love my wife. It's a little sarcastic, right? So who knows if you, I love you, baby. Just be clear. Okay, who knows if he will turn and relent and leave, and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows 
if when he relents, he's not just going to remove judgment, but he's going to leave a blessing. This is the God that we serve. It's not just that he's like, okay, I'm going to take my hand to judgment. No, he leaves the blessing there. Right? But what's the purpose of the blessing? God's blessings have purpose. Did you know that? Every blessing God gives you has an intention and it has a purpose. So it says here, who knows if you'll turn around and relent and leave a blessing behind him. A grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Now listen to this. They just entered a season where the locusts had devoured the grain, devoured the wine, devoured everything. There were no grapes. There were no olives for oil. The locusts had devoured everything. And who knows if God relents and leaves a blessing behind. The relenting of, the, of, of, of God is specifically to restore the land. When he relents, he blesses. I, I had in my note here that the blessing is for worship. The land is actually called to produce offerings to the Lord. What is, when we give an offering to the Lord, what is it? It's worship, Right? That was the act of worship in the Old Testament was to bring whatever you had, right? Whether it was money. If you came, if you came to the temple and you didn't have a, a lamb or a turtle dove or enough wine or enough, you'd bring money. And then you go into the temple. They had this little booth over to the side. You'd go over and you'd buy whatever it is that you wanted to give to the, to give at the temple, right? What's amazing here is that the blessing that God gives allows the land to flourish enough for the storehouses to be filled up. It allows the land to flourish enough that we can now not just eat food, but we can give. I, I see this happening in Acts chapter 2, in Acts chapter 4. The Spirit is poured out. Revival hits Jerusalem. Right? Acts chapter 4 says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked... Say that again. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. In Joel, the offerings were the result of giving the land back its ability to provide for sustenance. In Acts, offerings were from those who no longer cared about the safety and security of this world. They trusted God to provide, to bless, and to rescue those in need. Part of the healing of the land will be found as extreme generosity flourishes. In fact, I think that there's a sowing there's a sowing that happens, like, for, like in 2 Corinthians 8, 
where the Macedonians gave out of their great poverty, right? They gave out of their, out of their need. They gave to meet the supply of, of, those in, of those in Corinth. You know what's amazing? Or in Jerusalem? You know what's amazing? Is that there's this giving that happens, this extreme generosity that I think breaks the back of the devil. It breaks the back of the one who would want you to think that there's never enough. And if we're going to break that poverty mindset in this region, I think people need to rise up with such extreme generosity that it literally breaks the back of the devil. Woo! Come on. I think revival's coming, church. Listen, I, I think as God shifts the trajectory of devastation in the land, we must be prepared to worship God with what the land provides. Right? This, I mean, that's your job. That's income, right? That's the same reference points. Do you guys get that? Do you guys get that when they talked about the grain offering, that's like you giving 20 bucks? Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's the same thing. We like to, like, parse it out like, oh, well, I, I, have, I have debit cards now, and they had grain. Same stuff. Same stuff, okay? We're t- I, mean, I mean, we try to... Try to we do this weird mental gymnastics to make ourselves think that like our money's different now than it was then. It's weird. All right. When we see the community turn around, the places where people are built up, healed, and equipped should be the first stops for where our offerings to the Lord go. Can I just say we've got to fund equipping centers. We've got to fund places where, where people can get in touch with their destiny, where they can get in touch with their calling, where they can get in touch with what God has in store for them. Because they're gonna, they're, people are coming in broken. They need to be healed. They need to be equipped. And they need someone to put a boot on their rear end and get them out the door. Amen? Launch pads. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's part of our vision right? Be a refuge for healing and a launch pad for transformation. This is who we are. Now, uh, verses 15 and 16. Does that one make sense now, right? The the verse 14, because, you know, that's one that that doesn't necessarily always make sense. Verse uh, 15 and, and 16 says, blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, Gather the children in nursing bathes. Let the bridegroom go out from his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Listen, God is saying, get everybody on the same page. Get everybody on the same page. This is the other aspect of what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4, right? Right? In Acts 2, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, Right? Acts 4.32, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, of one soul. As God pours out, we have to be on the same page. Including with people from different churches. I mean, us Pentecostals might have to get along with some Baptists. Woo! One of the realities is, is that the devil has loved to make division in the body of Christ. 
It's actually been so highlighted in the political spirit that has come across this nation. Right? Where there's actually divisions in the body over politics. What? May it not be so among us. May it not be so among us. Amen? Amen. God's calling us to a greater level of unity than we've ever even uh, been able to fathom yet. And, and part of the reason is because our hearts aren't broken for the same things. See, the fast and the weeping and the congregation, everybody coming together was to mourn over the devastation and the losses. And to say, God, don't do it. Don't let this happen any longer. Father, we're asking you to relent. We're asking God for you to step into the middle of this. Right? So we have to get a burden for the brokenness. And let me tell you what. When you're broken over something, it's contagious. How many of you know somebody who at some point got really aggressively upset about something and they couldn't stop telling everybody about it? how upset they were about a thing, and then suddenly you're like, yeah, that, you're right, that's unjust. You're right, you, that, that's right. Listen, the burden gets contagious. Carry it well and be vocal about your burden. If it's human trafficking, if it's addictions, if it's sexual abuse, domestic violence, whatever the burden is that you're sensing for this community, Shout it from the rooftops. Tell the people around you, these are the things that are breaking my heart. Why? Because God wants the entire body of Christ to gather and be broken together. Amen? Amen. Are you guys doing all right? Okay. So unity comes from true repentance. When we can get on the same page... When we all turn to God alone for the change we want to see, it's not in our wealth, our capacity, our ability to serve. It is found in turning to God, crying out to Him, and no longer ignoring the brokenness. And if you think you're exempt, this scripture says you are not exempt. If you think like you don't need to mourn because you've already had a season of mourning, you're not exempt. You know why? what the scripture says is that the, let the bridegroom come out, let the bride come out. They were exempt. In that culture, the bride and the bridegroom were exempt from fasting. They, they, they were not, in that season of, the, of, of them getting married, they were not allowed to fast. They were supposed to feast on each other. How many of you know when we come, the bride of Christ, we get to feast on the bridegroom, on Jesus, Right? Right? But he's saying, listen, feast on me, feast on me, but nope, you still need to go fast. You still need to go mourn. You still need to go weep. Nobody's exempt from being broken and burdened by the devastation in the community. So we got to come together and do that. Amen? Now, don't be a jerk about it. If people disagree with you, they don't like it, or they don't want to hear it, move on. You're not here to create broken converts. We lead people to Jesus. Amen? We're going to reveal the goodness of God. But sometimes we need to let people know, listen, God's heart is burning for these people. God's heart is burning, and and I am burdened to see them saved. I am burdened to see transformation in this community. All right, lastly, we must intercede instead of doing the work of ministry. 
Verse 17, let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not give your heritage to reproach that the nation should rule over them. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Okay. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are all priests now. There is no sacred versus secular in the church. I have a different role to play than most. But most of you have a different role to play than most too. Don't get that wrong. Let the priests who minister to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. The picture is this. The altar was the place where they would bring the sacrifices, chop it down, kill it, and then, you know, burn it, right? And then the priest would eat it. That's how, you know, how, that's how priests ate? They ate from the altar? And, oh, yeah, and, and the wine offering and the grain offering, and the, oh, that was to feed the priests? Okay. Now, there's the altar, and he says, between the porch and the altar. Well, at the time, Solomon's porch was just outside the front gate. So what's in between the altar and the porch? It was called the women's court. This is the place where women would gather because they were not allowed past a certain point. It was where the women would gather, and they would wail, and they would intercede, and they would intercede and intercede and they would pray. We see some great pictures of women in this area crying out to God throughout scripture. This is a place. Priests, come out from your holy duties and go into this women's court and go intercede and pray and wail, and mourn. Stop your priestly duties. That's what the word says. Stop your priestly duties and go cry out to me. Cry between the altar and the porch in the women's court. God is asking us to stop being busy and begin interceding for this region. It's a season to pause your busyness and just pray. We can't let go of our busyness if we're still thinking we're in control and if we're not fully surrendered. Will you stand with me? How we doing? Everybody doing okay? I, I had a feeling that this series would cause many of us to take stock of how we've been living here in North Idaho. And, and one of the things I really felt the Lord wanted to do was to wake us up to the devastation around us. When we talk about 
the power of, the, of, of coming in contact with God's will for this land. We can declare it. We can prophesy it all day. But if we don't get broken over the people and over the devastation in the land, we will not see revival. So, I want to go through um, and, and stay standing with me. But there's something that I believe the Lord wants to activate this morning. And I want you just to own one of the five things. You might be like, I'm a little of all of them. The Lord wants to highlight one of these to you. I'm going to ask some questions. And let the Lord speak to your heart. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you about where it is that your focus needs to be this next week. In your prayer time, in your intercession, okay? Can you guys agree that we can pray over this region? Can we do that together? Okay, great. So are you real with your own heart towards God and towards the brokenness in this community? Are you willing to look it in the face? Are you willing to look at it and not turn away, but lock eyes with the devastation? That Maybe that's you. You need to own that. What about... Where do you put your trust? We're to set our eyes on the one who can turn the situation around. Who is it that you really think can save you and save this community? Maybe you've put your trust in money. Maybe you've put your trust in efforts and doing more, doing more, doing more. No, we have to put our eyes on him. And maybe the Lord's calling you today to put your eyes back on Jesus, to put your eyes on the one who can turn this thing around. Or maybe you've been withholding from God, trying to control things on your own. Are you prepared to give back as God turns the situation around? Are you withholding anything from him, whether it's in finances or in time or in energy? And he's pulled you, he's called you to give, but yet you've, you've pushed back against the Lord. That's not going to work. That's not surrender. Maybe that's an area that God's called you to begin to consider. Maybe you've been unwilling to align with God's purposes for this region because you're offended. Are you willing to align with the purposes of God or have you been the judge of what's happened around you? We must come broken. We cannot, we, we have to just trust the Lord. Our judgment keeps us from being on the same page. Our judgments keep us from being on the same page with believers we disagree with, with people that we maybe struggle with. It's our judgments that keep us from the same page. So maybe you've struggled with that. And lastly, are you praying or are you entrusting others to do it for you? Think of those five things. Pick one, okay? Are you activated with brokenness towards this region? Do you have your eyes set on Jesus? Or are you believing in some other way of fixing the problems? Are you prepared to give back? Are you withholding anything from the Lord? Are you 
holding on to judgments against other people instead of aligning with God's purposes? And are you actively choosing to pray or entrusting it to other people? Let's take a moment. Pick one. Pick one. Just one. I, I, I could probably raise my hand to all five on some level, so just pick one to make your focus. Holy Spirit, I'm just asking that you speak right now and you lay it on, on an individu- each individual's heart what it is that they need to press into this week. Hallelujah. When you know which one it is, raise your hand. Okay, come on. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you, Lord. Father, I ask right now in Jesus' name that your love would just overwhelm your people today. Calls to repentance are always difficult, Lord, because they confront things in us that we don't necessarily want to change or deal with, and yet we come today ready to fully surrender it all. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name that as we lay things at your feet, we would not pick them back up, but we'd be willing to let it go and give it to you and choose that this week we will commit ourselves to dealing with our judgments, to look straight into the brokenness, to to begin to align with your purposes for this region. Father, we will pray, we will seek your face and ask you to do the things that only you can do. And Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would awaken the body of Christ. Awaken the body of Christ to step in to the glory for which you have set it forth. To be light and to be salt. To extend our souls to the hungry to satisfy the afflicted souls, to let our light shine in the darkness and to let the darkness be as the noon day. Jesus, we need you. We need your help. We need you to flood our space. Get in our face. Father, I thank you that uh, you've actually put a guard over every heart here that no one will walk out of this room with shame and condemnation. No one will walk out of this room feeling like they are less than or incapable or feeling beat up. No. We're just being called higher. We repent. We go back to your ways, God. We go back to your ways. And we know that your ways are the best ways. (laughs) We're tired of low living, God. We're tired of living for the less. We say, nevertheless, always the greater. We are going to go your direction in your way. And we let go of our foolishness, and we say yes to your wisdom. Hallelujah. And we give you praise, we give you honor and glory that the fruit of what you are doing here will cascade into a tidal wave of revival in this community. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Harvest Valley Worship Center is called to be a refuge for healing and a launch pad for transformation.
If this message impacted you today, please let us know in a comment, or you can email us at media at hvwc.com. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to connecting with you.